Thanks, Matt. Uh, today we're going to be reading from Ezra chapter 7, starting at verse 1. It can be found on page 470 of the Bibles on your seats, or of course it'll be on the screen behind me. Ezra chapter 7. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zeariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, And he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord of Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisers to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, You are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisers have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the freewill offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money be sure to buy bulls, rams and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your fellow Israelites may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God. And anything else needed for the temple of your God that you are responsible to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasurers of Trans-Euphrates are to provide with diligence whatever the Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven." Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, 
tribute or duty on any of the priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants or other workers at this house of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to admit a justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honour to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favour to me before the king and his advisers and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Thank you, Kelly. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie. If we haven't met yet, it would be great to keep your Bibles open there in Ezra. Um, but I wonder when the last time was that you heard the question, are we there yet? Or maybe asked it yourself. Uh, when I was a kid, my dad would often have work conferences in Melbourne, and sometimes he'd bundle the whole family up into the outback and bring us along. I vividly remember the feeling of being a kid waking up in the car. It's dark outside, the engine's off, and that brief moment of excitement thinking we made it to the big city before the devastating realisation that we were just at and on the run. And from then on, the are we there yet would begin to flow thick and fast. Reading Ezra can feel a little bit like that. Uh, not because the long list of names lull you to sleep. Um, thank you, Kelly, for reading them so well for us. Uh, but because there are all these moments where it seems like God's people have finally arrived. Back in Jerusalem after years of exile. But the challenges just keep rolling. Our passage today picks up after a note of great expectation Last week, Cam preached on that amazing moment when, thanks to some excellent bureaucracy and the grace of God, the people finally rebuilt their temple. All that's left is for God's glorious presence to fill it and the glorious, all-powerful King to come and show God's goodness to the world. But here we are in Ezra 7, about 50 years later, and the people are still waiting under yet another foreign king. There's no question that God is coming through on his promises, but the waiting is hard. These people are struggling to live faithfully to this God as a strange minority. And though they're physically back in their promised land, it's clear that the journey home isn't done yet. So what do they need to put in their backpacks for the rest of the road? Or what about for us today? God has made himself known to us in even more incredible ways. He's sent his son. And the risen king, Jesus, is calling people home to himself. That's why we're here. But we're not there yet. There's plenty of struggle while we wait for his promised return. 
So what does the church today need? What kind of leaders, what resources, what ideas will enable God's people to flourish in this cultural climate? It's fun to solve the world's problems, uh, but what about just in our own lives? What do you need to keep getting out of bed every day and to keep taking the next step with courage and joy, knowing that your best days are still ahead? Well, true to the book so far, today's passage gives us perhaps a surprising answer to those questions. When after six chapters, we finally meet Ezra, the guy the book is named after, and we see that the journey home is led by a man on his knees. So point one in your leaflets. Ezra is from Aaron's family tree, the brother of Moses and the first priest. Ezra has deep roots in the story of God saving a people to himself. And what marks him out as a leader, verse 6, is this. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. So is this another anticlimactic moment in this Are We There Yet kind of book? They've got a temple. Surely what the people need now is a revolutionary king. But instead, God sends a Bible nerd. For those returnees who are tuned into the story of God's grace, they might have picked up that this is actually the kind of leader they really need. Because it's when the road starts to feel long that the heart wanders. Flashing back to the start of Ezra's family tree, after God led those people out of slavery in Egypt all those centuries ago and promised that they were his people. While Moses was up on the mountain, hearing the very voice of God, the people down the hill start getting a bit impatient. And they gather around the first priest, Aaron, and say, hey, we don't know what's going on with Moses. He's taking a while. How about we make a statue of a golden calf and let's praise that as our God. And with almost comical speed, they turn from their saviour to indulge in the revelry of their own choice. It's a very human kind of comedy, isn't it? Even when we're really convinced about something, when the road gets a bit rough, we tend to veer off. So that's why Ezra is exactly the gift that God's people need. He's no revolutionary king, but he will help the waiting people to stick with God on the road ahead. Have a look at verse 10 there in your Bibles for Ezra's leadership philosophy. Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. He set his heart on this goal of knowing God's word really well. Not for the sake of winning the Bible trivia round at the Persian pub, It can't just be head knowledge for Ezra because these are the words of the law given by God himself. So it's study and observance. And what better person to teach others than someone who walks the talk? 
And incidentally, as much as Ezra might not seem as exciting as a revolutionary king, he's the kind of leader our world longs for because he leads as a person of integrity. Ezra set his heart on learning God's word so that he could obey it and teach it to others. What a beautiful model of leadership. Like a shepherd calling to his sheep, God leads his people by his word. And when the road home is long, he provides a leader like Ezra, who changes the world by studying the Bible. I don't know if you've ever thought of Bible study as a world-changing pursuit. Ezra, studying the law as a priest in exile with no temple to serve in, learning to obey it as an oddball in a godless society. I wonder if he realized that this was part of God's perfect curriculum for him as a person and as a leader. After so many generations of basically doing their own thing, God's people finally heard God's voice again through this man of integrity. If you're taking notes, you might like to jot down Nehemiah 8 as a passage to look up after. It recounts the day when Ezra stood in Jerusalem before a crowd of all ages and read from the law while a bunch of his helpers were scurrying about explaining so everyone could understand. Ezra had to stop reading and say, don't mourn or weep because all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. As they heard those old, old words of God's saving power in Exodus, as they learned what it means to live with him as their Lord, they were broken and remade. And Ezra set the course for the Jewish nation becoming people of the book like they never had been before. Today, Christians around the world are gathering to listen to the words written down centuries and even millennia ago to remind each other of their truth, fully expecting them to be transformative and real. Is that what you're expecting? Today, we have more Bible to learn from. We have the records of the one the law of Moses pointed to, the saviour Ezra hoped for. And if there ever was a leader with integrity... It's got to be Jesus, right? Who walked the talk even to the point of death on a cross because he was determined to obey his father's word. The promise of a priest who would make the once for all sacrifice fulfilled forever. Jesus is the greater Ezra who came into a world of lesser Ezra's He called out the hypocrisy of scribes and Pharisees who learned and taught but didn't obey. Studying the Bible is a life-changing pursuit because the Bible leads us to Jesus and Jesus leads us home to God. That's why the Bible College of South Australia is probably the most revolutionary place in this city. Uh, alongside kitchen tables, cafes and desks all over town, wherever the Bible is studied and learned from in order to be obeyed and taught. 
In a world where there's lots of shiny promises about how to get your life together and even to change the world, this is a challenge and a big claim, isn't it? If you're newer to the Bible, it might be hard to know whether all this could really ring true. As you keep exploring, I think a great question to ask of it is, does Jesus have integrity as I read the Bible? I think about how that question changed everything for my friend Jared. Um, I met him as he walked into church for the first time in years uh, one Sunday, and he walked in with all these big kind of cynical questions about life. I remember talking to him and thinking, I am so out of my depth, I don't know how to respond. Um, but I said, oh, hey, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament are a good place to start if you're wanting to see what Christianity is about. Uh, I don't really know if that was a great answer, but the next week he came and he said, oh, I've read all four. And um, I think what Jesus says makes more sense than anything else I've ever read. And a few weeks later, he texted me and said, oh, I'm about halfway through the Bible now. Uh, It was such a joy to be there at Jared's baptism a few months later as he shared how his world had been absolutely rocked in the best possible way by getting to know Jesus as he read the Bible. Some here today have been in that process of studying the Bible in order to obey it much longer than me. How might Ezra's example spur you on today? One thing I've been reflecting on is how studying, obeying, and teaching go hand in hand. That really cautions me against driving a wedge between head knowledge and practical living. And maybe that's a particular danger for a new pastor fresh out of Bible college. But I think for all of us, it can be tempting to peg yourself as more of a book smart or more of a street smart kind of person. And it's probably right that we all have different strengths. But let's be reminded, you can do all the thinking and reading in the world and still disobey God. That would be a disaster. At the same time, we can set out with all the good intentions in the world, but if they're not shaped by learning from God's Word, our efforts might lack in richness or joy or maybe even faithfulness. As we get close to the end of another year, is there an aspect of this world-changing pursuit that you'd like to get back on your front burner? Is it time to put learning back on the agenda with whatever kind of personality and capacity you have? What would it look like to apply more of your brain to the Bible? One thing I've really loved about this series in Ezra is how much I've learned from delving into a book of the Bible that's really not been that familiar to me. Are there other bits waiting for you to do the same with? Or is it coming to church having prayed with great expectation that you might learn something today? Or picking a Christian book for the summer that will stretch your thinking about an aspect of God's character? For others of us, it might be more about putting some of that learning into practice to make some sacrificial choices or maybe to find someone to start sharing what you've been learning in the Bible with. Whatever the case, God's word is treasure in our hands 
every time we come to it, let's pray that God might help us to listen so that we might obey and tell others. That'll put courage and joy into our next step on the road home. Led by God's word and point two, convinced of God's gracious hand. Have a look again at verse six at the other thing that marks Ezra out. The king had granted him everything he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. We see evidence of that gracious hand in Artaxerxes' letter from verse 12. As God moves the heart of yet another secular king who on one level makes a political move of religious tolerance but on another unwittingly serves the glory of God. It's quite amazing, isn't it, that He commands Ezra to teach the Bible and set up other leaders to do the same and and backs them financially and makes sure the local government doesn't tax them. In the mess of human decision-making and the chaos of world politics, whether it's through or despite them, God's hand is at work. There are a few other places in the Bible where the idea of God's hand, that striking phrase, comes up. The Exodus is remembered as the great act of God's strong hand. And many generations later, of people shaking their fists at God, the prophet Isaiah foresaw a miraculous renewal. He says, I'll put in the desert the cedar and acacia, the myrtle and the olive, so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this that the Holy One of Israel has created it. When we read about God's hand in Ezra, we're not meant to just be impressed that God is doing miraculous stuff. We're meant to be blown away as we realize that God is taking a bunch of wayward exiles and creating a new people for himself. He's leading another exodus, not because they deserve it, but because he's absolutely determined to live with his people. And his hand does everything to provide for those people on the road home. In verse 9, it's the reason Ezra makes it safely to Jerusalem. In chapter 8, verse 18, it ensures that the right people join Ezra. In verse 31 of chapter 8, it spares them from attack. God's hand is still working today whether it be through the favour of a king like Artaxerxes or the horror of a Roman cross, God's hand is drawing wandering sinners like you and I to himself. And as Ezra, this leader on his knees, realises that, he bursts out in song in verse 27 of chapter 7. Praise be to the God, the, the Lord of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart, to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. What an appropriate response to the mighty hand of God. Praise and courage. Praise. Ezra knows that he's only getting this chance because of God's good favor to him. There's no other way that could happen. That's what the Bible means when it talks about grace. 
And the best way to respond to grace is to say, thank you. Praise be to the God who did this for me. Uh, We just ran a bunch of these Change for All sessions where we talked about our big plans for our church family next year. And do catch up on the video if you missed it. As I prepared to talk a bit about the next chapter of the mission here at CLG, uh, I, I heard so many grateful stories of God's gracious hand amongst us over the years. Stories of miraculous venue approval. Uh, stories of hearts moved to paint walls or fix dodgy ceilings. Stories of generosity, of people changed forever because they've come to know Jesus as their Lord. Praise be to the God of Ezra's ancestors and ours. As we head into that next season, which is sure to be a busy one, let's be diligent not to lose that note of thanks. As we get inventive at both churches, let's be determined to give all the praise for any success we might enjoy to our kind God. Praise and courage. Ezra was trying to work out life as a believer with the king and his powerful officials breathing down his neck. And there's plenty to be anxious about today, isn't there too? Ezra says to us, I found courage in knowing that my God is in charge over the easy times and the hard. Uh, When I first started talking to our senior pastor Matt last year about possibly coming to work here, Um, One of the phrases that really drew me to him as a leader that I heard him use a couple of times was, well, he said it today, Jesus is the chief shepherd of this church. And as we talked and prayed about what this year could look like, with plans looking quite up up in the air at points, and I'm sure Matt had some stressful nights uh, all happening, that phrase came out again as we spoke on the phone, Jesus is the chief shepherd. I'm sure he'll use us however he sees fit. That's a very Ezra-like attitude, isn't it? The courage that comes from knowing whatever else is up in the air, God is at work. And if you're wondering if it could be true that God's gracious hand is there for you, like it was for Ezra, the best place to look is the cross. That place in history where God reached into this world and we see how much Jesus, God in the flesh, was willing to pay for our safe passage home. He carried all our disobedience there and left it in his empty tomb. Being convinced of that reality has been the source of praise and courage for so many over the centuries since. From the first disciples who went from being hopeless fishermen to bold preachers to the many lives changed in this room. In good times and bad, God is unflappably in control. And that idea, I guess, could lead to a kind of resignation, like it doesn't really matter what we do. But for Ezra, being convinced of God's gracious hand leads to quite the opposite. Point three, humbling, fumbling forward. The rubber really hits the road over in chapter eight. And Ezra hits his first issue in verse 15. As he looks at this group of leaders that he so courageously gathered, 
he realizes there are some key faces missing. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there, says Ezra. And for him, that was unthinkable because in the travels of God's Old Testament people, it was the Levites' job to carry the things to do with God's meeting place. And here they are traveling to the temple, laden with treasures. And Ezra knows this is a chapter in that great story of God meeting with his people. So he realizes he needs some Levites. It's quite a real life moment. Like, did Ezra just forget to CC the Levites in on the invite to come on this great journey? Or maybe he really tried, but he just couldn't find anyone willing to go. Whatever the case, he sends some very switched-on people to go and get some Levites on board, which is no mean feat. They have to persuade these people with no living memory of Jerusalem to uproot their lives and take on all the responsibilities that this historic tribe had in the temple. I don't know how they did it. Although we know Ezra was a skilled Bible teacher, I'm sure he gave a very compelling vision of why doing, being on board with what God is doing in the world is the best thing you could do with your life. But all the passage says in verse 18 is that by God's grace, some Levites agreed. So here is Ezra humbling, fumbling forward. He knows God's in control. He knows God's word. And when he's confronted with a tricky issue, he does his best to respond And it happens again in chapter 8, and Ezra has this moment of fear and trembling. He contemplates this weird religious minority group before him, setting out on a dangerous road with all this silver and gold, not to mention the limitless salt, but no bodyguards. And verse 22 tells us that Ezra had been ashamed to ask the king for a protective army for help. Because he told the king, oh, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. And so he's kind of wondering in this moment, was that the right thing to say? We better pray. He rounds everyone up. Let's humble ourselves and pray. It's it's a kind of funny moment because in the next book, Nehemiah takes an army with him to Jerusalem. And it's not like that's an ungodly thing to do. But Ezra had made this noble call to refuse the offer of help. To, to witness to his king about his God. And in that moment, by the Ahava Canal, his noble convictions are put to the test. Have you had a moment like that, where maybe something that's easy to say about God, like God's in control or your will be done, really gets tested in the mess of life? I wonder if it's how we might feel in, say, March next year, after God willing, planting Tonsley, feeling all the teething issues at both churches and missing friends. We might think, I know we said this was for the gospel and Jesus is building his church, but man, we better pray. That's what Ezra does. And after a bit of a halting start, The trek is on. Under God's protection, he answers the prayer. I love how three-dimensional that picture of life on the road home is. Ezra has these great godly convictions, but it doesn't mean it's all smooth sailing. 
Maybe it's more like real sailing. And uh, as someone who did two sailing lessons in year seven, I should know. From what I understand, and perhaps you can correct me, but when you're sailing from A to B, it's pretty much never a straight line. You're constantly tacking and changing direction, responding to the elements, trying not to get hit by the boom. And if you know what you're doing, you're always on your way to that point B. It's a picture of Ezra on the road home with these exiles. He's, he's got the wind of the sovereign God in his sails. He's got the compass of God's word in his hand. And he's working out where to from here in the surprises of life. Humbling, fumbling, but by God's grace, always forward. It's a picture of life with Jesus. We know where he's taking us, to that eternal home in his father's house. He tells us what we need to know about following him, but maybe not all the answers we might like. Just what we need to prayerfully give it a go. Knowing God is in control with the compass of the Bible, we can pray and decide. And in God's grace, repent when we get it wrong. Change when we need to. And sometimes we'll be deciding on two good directions. Other times it'll be clear that one path will actually lead you away from Jesus. And the challenge is to humbly accept that. As we prayerfully give it a go on the way home to eternity, Ezra warns us, I think, that there's always the temptation to value shininess over integrity. But God's chosen leader is a person on their knees. Makes me think of my youth leaders in my little youth group at the church plant I grew up in. Were they good at giving talks? Uh, did they know a lot about youth culture? I actually don't know. I can't remember. I'm sure some of them were good at lots of things. I just remember their character. I remember Richard coming over to chat with me after church, trying to engage with the shy kid. Or the normally light-hearted Emma tearing up one time when she talked about how much Jesus meant to her. Or the way Lockie would respond to our barrages of tricky questions by saying, hmm, and opening his Bible. I pray that God might make me a person of increasing integrity as a leader, as a dad, a husband, a friend. Imagine what it could mean for our church family if God grew all of us in that Ezra-like humility, growing in the skill of obedience, teaching one another, our kids, our youth, our community groups, our neighbours and friends as people who have been taught. We're not there yet. But we know who's leading us. What might the next step on the journey home look like for you? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the way you care for us on the road home. Thank you for your wisdom in giving a leader like Ezra. Thank you for the integrity, obedience, and sacrifice of our King Jesus that we see foreshadowed in Ezra. Please teach all of us to keep humbly taking the next step forward. Please grow us in our integrity. 
And may each of us spend the rest of our lives growing in our knowledge of you so that we can obey you and tell others. Amen.